Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. A lot of them hang vertically when they sing. And there was a whale that was sort of at about 45 degrees, at about 20 feet beneath us. And as soon as I got in the water, my ears and head were just full of its singing. The water is vibrating with the whale's voice, so you become a kind of part of its song. You vibrate with its voice. You ring like a kind of bell. Wails and grunts vibrate you in different ways, and some of them you can't hear, they're beneath human hearing, but they vibrate at such low frequencies that all of you kind of rumbles. I wondered whether it was like listening to people talking when you're in the womb, you know, as a child, as an unborn child, whether you feel the sounds from the world around you through water in your mother. I mean, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. I, I, want, I want to feel it again. <laughs> That's Tom Mustel. He's a conservation biologist, and he makes beautiful films about where nature and people meet. He's worked with Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough, and he's been shat on by bats in Mexico. And recently he finished a book called How to Speak Whale. I read it in one day, and it made me cry at least three times, not because it was sad, but because it describes the very real possibility that someday, maybe even in my lifetime, we'll begin to understand the complex language of whales and all that that understanding would imply. Also, I cried because it made me want to swim near a whale and listen to one sing underwater. And that probably isn't going to happen. Tom was in southern Vermont interviewing Roger Payne, a scientist whose 1970 album, Songs of the Humpback Whale, galvanized the Save the Whales movement and really developed our understanding of whale behavior and culture. So while Tom was here to interview Roger, I drove down and interviewed Tom. We sat in a floating Japanese tea house near Roger's place for hours and I didn't want to stop until he had told me every single thing he has ever learned about whale behavior and every story that he could think of. He was really polite about it. And I don't know why I have this insatiable feeling about whales and wanting to understand them. In a way, I wonder if it's what phantom pain feels like. It's as though there's something missing in not knowing about the culture of whales. That if we could understand whale culture a little... Everything would make a little more sense. I don't know, but I recorded him as long as he would let me. Here's Tom Mustel. The portal, it seems, is is, is the eye, and this 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 tiny place on a bus-sized creature. What happens when you look at that eye? I guess their eyes look so similar to ours that 
suddenly there's another animal that is in sense in almost all other ways so unlike you and yet it's got this bit that looks just like yours so there's a familiarity there and you can tell where it's looking they move their eyes and look around in the same way that we do and those eyes can turn and look at you sometimes they turn to look at you and then if you're swimming with a whale or on a boat looking down they will turn their head around and look at you with their other eye if you're on a boat they might stick their head out of the water and stick that eye right up and turn their head and keep looking at you and if you're underwater they might come right up and peer at you when any animal is inquisitive about you it is striking but when something so big and that lives such a different life is and you meet them especially in their element in water where you're so out of place you feel you're being met and assessed by another mind and then that is the feeling that's the anthropomorphic feeling but there is no reason from any evidence to not assume that's what's happening too Do you remember the first time that ever happened? This baby humpback whale, its mother was deep below us. Um, the mothers don't need to come to the surface to breathe as often. So what would happen is the calf would rest underneath her, her kind of pectoral fin. But it would be kind of looking up and there was a few humans up on the surface. And, uh, and then the calf would come to the surface to breathe, but it would take the opportunity to come and scout us out and there were about five or six of us and it, it, it kind of did a little tour down the line of us kind of checking each of us out in turn and we must have all looked very different with our different colour flippers and some of us with cameras in housings and some making you know ungainly splashes and others much more at home and then it would go back down again and sit there kind of peering up at us I mean this animal was very big and you know it was as long as the jetty that we're sat on here and big enough to do you in you know and so there was a slight feeling of, oh, please don't, please don't play with me. Um, but then it did, and it would float around and twirl around and wave its pectoral fins around and kind of, it almost seemed cheeky. And that is a total projection, but that was the feeling of the way it was kind of, you know, in the way that a sort of toddler would hide behind, behind its mother's legs and then run out at you and then kind of freak itself out a bit by being a bit too close and then run away and hide again. That was wonderful. There's a moment in the end of the book when you're levitating over, it's just a terrifying vertigo I felt reading it, but you're swimming over a whale that is vertical, mm. and there's something about looking down at a whale that's doing this vertically that's so magical, sublime. I think sublime is a really interesting word because, you know, the old Victorian adventurers, they went in search of the sublime, you know, to, to mountains and where the edge of existence and the m minuteness of human life is thrown into really sharp relief. You know, that mountains are good for that because you, you're kind of so small and they're kind of big and terrifying and you could die there. Whales are really good for that because they're just so big and in the ocean 
you know, when you float for a while and just stare downwards, even if there's not a whale there, you can get dizzied in the big blue, you know, you lose perspective, but you know you're small and you're kind of like, almost like flotsam. But when there's a whale underneath you, you kind of go back and forth between understanding how big it is and losing that perspective and it can be feel much bigger or much smaller and then it moves or comes closer and then if it suddenly rises up to breathe and it's very near you it can be very intimidating they know how close you are but often they'll come up to breathe right up alongside you and then their eye will kind of pass you like the window of a train kind of coming past you're in no doubt that they're aware that you're there. I mean, Gene, the captain who takes us out, he's had experiences with whales that have danced with him for hours. The whale will come and pirouette, and then he will replicate the whale's movement. And sometimes the whale will, will, will kind of hover with its body down as if it's kind of, if it were a person, as if it was standing up. And then the whale will rotate and he'll rotate. There's been times where it's felt like the whale has paused and then he's given a new movement and the whale then did his movement. They are all individuals, which is unsurprising. And they and some have different preferences and some of them seem to be what the captains call friendly whales. That they will mug boats, which is when they kind of come up alongside the boats, stick their heads out or roll around underneath them or hang out there and and come and interact with people. But they're they're unusual. Mostly they just do their own thing. And you feel very lucky just to be able to watch that. Why is anthropomorphism such an enemy of science? Well, I feel it's because it's... Well, one thing that... And I, I identify with this is that if you cannot support your assumption with evidence and you cannot either prove or disprove it, that makes this something that is unscientific. But I feel there's also a squeamishness because it feels a bit against the grain of what a lot of science has been working towards for, you know, I mean, it's only recently that, that, that scientists have been investigating things that would have seemed pseudoscientific before like animals different animal individuals having different personalities or other animals having things that were just thought to be the remit of humans we've always set ourselves apart from other animals and we've had long lists of what makes us different and so if you kind of trespass on that list and you say well I feel that maybe this cat does feel pain or you know it looks like it to me you can be dismissed because that's kind of fuzzy feeling but we know that cats feel pain so that feels like it's changing. I think with some, like especially with sort of research on dolphins, there have been people who've made bold claims about what dolphins can think or feel or do that have been based on very flimsy evidence. What are the dangers then of, so of anthro, I think anthro denialism was that the word anthropodenial and that's a terrible word it's a horrid word in fact i spelt it wrong every time i wrote the book and i only called it at the last minute That's because it should never be spelled it should be spelt like anthrodenial i think exactly yeah like human or animal you know resistance to inner lives of animal Mm. thought not like usness or something right not like usness would be better so there are two ends of the spectrum there's 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 dressing up your dog in a little tuxedo jacket hmm. and then there's dogs feel nothing because they can't speak they yes. can't ask for breakfast so 
what is the quality we might bring to this that would thread the needle? Hmm. I think openness, you know, anthropodenial, I think, comes from an unwillingness to confront our treatment of other species. And it's far more convenient if you want to do horrible things to others to assume that they cannot feel how bad that is. So I think one should be open. And that is such a nicer way of living than in deciding in advance what everything is. Otherwise, you know, both ends of the spectrum, deciding what animals are like or aren't like is prejudice. And if it's not based on experience, then it's just silly and you're losing out on the opportunity to su be surprised by what you could find. So humility yes. is a word? Absolutely. I think also just curiosity. Both of them are just so closed-minded. I think that the joy of life, I mean, you probably feel this as somebody who likes to meet people and ask questions, is to be able to follow one's curiosity. And the most joyful moments are when you're, what you presume is confounded and something totally unexpected comes up that makes you reconsider what you thought in the first place. How great. You know, rather than go walking into like a, like a wood, like the one that's in front of us, and say, oh, this is this kind of birch, and that is this kind of bird, to not go with an idea of what you're going to extract and see, but to just walk in and think, oh, what is this? Charlotte and I are in a two-person kayak, and it's bright red, and we're in a little train of about three other double kayaks paddling back to the shore of Moss Landing, which is a harbour halfway between Santa Cruz and Monterey, in Monterey Bay. And we'd been whale watching, and we'd seen a bunch of whales and humpback whales that had been feeding on a big school of fish that had been in the bay for days, if not weeks. And so there were many, many whales. And we were paddling back to shore, and it was very calm. Uh, it was so, the water was so flat, and it, the sun had come out. It had been really misty, but the sun was just starting to break through the kind of classic fog of that part of the world. And there were sea lions in the water and pelicans flying around, and you could hear the of whales surfacing in between bouts of feeding and if you were downwind of them their breath would kind of cover you it's you know quite disgusting it's like really fishy oily broccoli like boiled long boiled broccoli you, you know once you smell it you know it so we were paddling back to shore and then really just absolutely out of nowhere this humpback whale comes out of the water and it it comes straight upwards like a, like some sort of disaster movie tectonic force, like a huge iceberg or, you know, like a space shuttle taking off or something sort of enormous and violent and not living, just a powerful thing. It was just so massive and so obviously very, very heavy, just full of, like, muscle and blood and bones. And it shoots up and coming off its body are uh, these streams of white water. It arced up, and then you don't really know what direction something's going until it starts coming down. And then I realized it was gonna come down directly on top of us. And I had long enough only really to think, that it's going to land on me and I'm going to die. 
And then I don't remember hearing anything, but I remember being underwater. I opened my eyes to, to look around and it was just white bubbles. And then I, I just felt mainly that it was the speed of movement in the water that was really astonishing. And I, and I remember feeling that the whale was very close. I was becoming to become quite scared then because I was a bit shocked to not be dead. And then I had a life jacket on, so that started moving me back up in the water and I kind of kicked to the surface and swam with the life jacket. And then I, you know, I came out the surface and I looked over and I saw sh that Charlotte was there and she was smiling and swearing and I smiled and swore a lot and my eyes were really wide and we sort of said, oh my God, oh my God. And then we climbed back into our kayak and we had to paddle back to shore. That's the bit I still can't get over. Why didn't somebody just give us a lift in a boat? <laughs> and then we had to go through the whole palaver of the guy who'd filmed it and it was a viral, you know, somebody filmed it on their cell phone. And so then we were a viral video and kind of news fodder for about a week or so. You know, if it happened five years before, that would have been the end of the story. Um, but because somebody filmed it on their cell phone, there was a record of it and people could analyze it and so tell us all sorts of things. And one of the things that they were able to do was to use artificial intelligence to match the pattern of the whale's tail that leapt onto us to a database of tens and now hundreds of thousands of photographs taken by people on whale watching trips of whale's tails uh, to tell us who that whale was, where it was born, who its mother was, and how old it was. And we've been able to follow it ever since. And now whenever a scientist or a citizen scientist takes a photo of that whale, it's automatically identified by the AI, logged in the system. And I get an email telling me that whale has been seen off the coast of Mexico or Colombia or, or, or Monterey Bay. And I'm a biologist. My training was in trying to follow animals and find patterns in their behaviors. And that is the crux of why I wrote the book, because I thought in what it, my story was a microcosm of a massive shift taking place in biology. Because of technology, we have opportunities to transcend the limitations we have as humans. Some of the people I met would place recording devices on the backs of humpback whales or on self-propelling boats that sailed across whole oceans. They can record things we can't hear. We can't go underwater, we can't hold our breath, we can't go in crushing depths. We can't listen and record all the time. Um, they have huge digital archives now of recordings, not of animals' bodies, but of their behaviours, their communications, their interactions. If you go into a natural history museum, you'll see dead bodies, you'll see corpses, you'll see skeletons. Only until recently have we been able to capture behaviour, not what animals are, their bodies, but what they do, how they behave, how that's different between individuals, and how they communicate and interact with each other. When we look at nature, we project our values of our own system and we try and pull out of nature uh, a sort of validation of the values of our system. And our system at the moment is all rapacious, individuals. You can do it by yourself if you're strong enough and you can kind of win a limited battle, so a battle for limited resources. And that's a really meagre way of looking at life. And it turns out that life itself doesn't represent that, that most species are constantly communicating and collaborating, deceiving and helping one another. It's not about individuals, it's about interaction. And it's really funny because we're not seeing this ourselves, but with machines we can, we can record it. 
you can record the movements of animals, you can record their songs, and you can record them in vast quantities, and then you can share them with one another through the internet. And then the final piece of this puzzle is, it's very hard for me to sit down and listen to a year's worth of humpback whale songs and find patterns in them. But that's very, very easy for AIs to do. And we've trained on humans pattern-finding systems that find patterns in our behaviours, in our languages. And now biologists are starting to take those tools that we've used to find patterns hidden in humans and find patterns in animal behaviours and their communications. And what we keep finding is behaviours and patterns in their communications that remind us of our own lives, our own behaviours and communications. Um, what does that mean? In what regard? Um, so with some dolphins, we're discovering that um, they have names. They have signature whistles, which are signals that are analogous to names, these sounds they make, that each dolphin has its own unique one. They learn them from a young age. Other dolphins around them learn it, and they will say it when that dolphin is around. If they're separated, they won't say it. If they're reunited, even decades later, they will remember those signature whistles. They seem to have names for their own acoustic clans cultures that's the way the biologists describe it so if you took two sperm whales from the same patch of sea they might not speak in the same way as one another they might behave in different ways from one another and that comes down to how they use their whale speak their way of vocally communicating with each other uh, sperm whales organize their lives almost totally by sound but by using machine analysis of of remotely recorded sound archives, we find that those whales that we could never hear before have enormously sophisticated voices and they're using them to live extremely different lives. And they teach one another how to live those different lives by using different ways of speaking. And those ways of, spe ways of speaking are so different that it seems those whales don't even interact with each other, even if they're the same species living in the same place, like tribes or clans. Their lives are knitted together by talking to one another, teaching their young how to be the way that their acoustic clan is, how to hunt and navigate, survive and collaborate to succeed there. But they're learnt. They're not, they're not automatic manifestations of their genetic code. They're cultural products that are passed down from mother to children. If we were able to, short of understanding what whales are saying or communicating, if we were able to establish simply the fact of this communication, then what are the implications for all that, the way that we conduct ourselves? It seems like a kind of terrifying proposition. I think it is. I think we talked before about anthropomorphism and about people being skeptical of other humans who projected human-like like characteristics in other animals, like having beliefs or desires or commu sophisticated communications. But there are very few other ways of explaining how many other social animals behave, other than they manage to uh, communicate complex things to one another and have things like concept of self and, pers and, and personal identity, um, that they have ideas that things can happen outside of their own time and space, that they make plans and manipulate one another, and they do that using their communications. So we have a hunch that this is already happening, but it's, there's a kind of strange irony that it's taking machines and artificial intelligences to make it so explicit that we cannot deny it. The implications, well, there's so many. I mean... 
And many will be very challenging because we are hyper aware of the destruction we are causing to the lives of other species. It was hard enough to know that when you just thought that they could sense pain or that they could, their lives could be disrupted or their numbers diminished and then you lose biodiversity. But when you realize that you are also treading on cultures and eradicating whole ways of being that were invisible to us, there's a whole level of conservation pain that that brings up. We know much more the damage that we do. But then there's also wonder not feeling so alone as being the only conscious animals. There is knowing that there are others that perceive the world perhaps like us, perhaps not like us, but, but profoundly nonetheless. The human condition has always been one to be perturbed by death and loneliness and our isolation and meaninglessness, and perhaps this is the route to finding more meaning and finding company in that pursuit. For me personally, I, I want to know what these other lives are like. That's enough for me. Under the water, I hear everything. Sounds in the kitchen, a heart beating. I don't have to rush I'm just here listening I can breathe again These songs change every year. That's one of their central features, that if you listen to whale song in one place 10 years ago, you might find nothing recognizable really in it from the day you listened. They continuously evolve. And it seems like there are whale populations 
that are really good at coming up with new whale songs, like kind of hit factories. And one of the populations is near Australia. It's really great. And they seem to have like almost a knack for coming up with kind of really good earworm whale harmonies or refrains. And they migrate and move every year. All the whales migrate, the humpback whales this is, from colder waters where they feed to warmer waters they reproduce each year and it's kind of like a in this annual cycle it takes them into other realms where other whales can hear them and it seems like the hip factory producing whales like those of south australia their songs gradually over the years leak out into other whale populations and they incorporate them into their repertoires Roger Payne, actually, he talks about this. He has this theory. He thinks that um, music, instead of being something extremely special to humans, is actually something very common to, to many, many animals. And that it has some deeper function biologically than we understand. And his, his way of framing this is really interesting. He said, we know why we eat and we know why we drink. So we can explain them. But, but we don't know why we like music. It doesn't do anything that we know about but perhaps it does do something we just don't know what it is and if birds sing and if whales sing and if many other species sing perhaps music has some deep biological function and that when you can hear the music of another species thing it does things to you even if you don't have the words for those things because they exist at a deeper level than the other things that you do that you like to talk about well that gets at this the complexity of what can what one can know about another is not just what can be articulated with ideas or mm. by ideas totally and so that's what you're sort of gesturing toward and i don't know what the question is but right. I, I guess it's like the you know maybe if there's a like when i when my daughter was very little and she was just a snuffling little six-week-old baby you know I feel some of the most exquisite moments of my life have been with her head breathing on my chest and snuffling away and, you know, grasping and ungrasping. And I don't need to know what that means. But I, I know it, it's, it's meaningful to me. And I don't need to articulate, you know, or break it down into its components. I don't feel that to understand something unweaves its rainbow or makes it less mysterious. Like, I don't feel that to know more about something kind of ruins the mystery or the faith, but I also don't mind not knowing something. I find that lovely. And also there's just direct sensual experience. Like, we jumped in this pond. It wasn't for, you know, my respiratory or cardiovascular health or or to understand the pond. I just knew that every time I jump in a pond, I feel better afterwards, and that's why I did it. And I feel at some level that's why I wanted to lie in the sea and listen to a whale sing. I 
I do not watch the sea like I used to before I set out on the journey of this book. Before, I would just take in the view. Now, however, my eyes skip around it, scrutinising the shape of spray, every stirring of the surface interrogated in the hope that it is the clue to a whale underneath. One afternoon I was looking at the sea, my wife Annie, six months pregnant beside me, with our daughter, still for now an aquatic being in her womb, yet to meet the air. I scanned the waves, reassuring myself there were no hidden cetaceans. And then I thought, what if there were none at all? What if every splash everywhere was just a splash, if no more fins broke the surface? My stomach turned over on itself. They face a troubled future. Some species are going extinct right now. I want my daughter to live in a world where these creatures thrive, across the seas in all their forms, where their cultures evolve and shift and mingle, and their strange voices fill the depths. I want this world for them, but also for her, for what she might gain from their wild influence, from the things we are on the cusp of knowing about them. My daughter will surely grow, and I will surely age, and whether it is from another leaping whale falling on me, or I trip on the stairs, I will die, and she will have to learn what it means to lose something forever. This is inevitable. But there are losses that we do not have to learn to accept, which we can choose to stop. The fates of the whales and dolphins are in human hands, and this loss is one I do not want for her. I hope that when she looks at the sea, an aged woman, she will catch a glimpse of a leaping spinner dolphin or humpback whale, and perhaps when she sticks her head beneath the waves and hears their whistles and songs, as I did, they will mean something to her. And perhaps, just perhaps, she will be able to answer back. I am here, she would say. You are here, and I am here. The water, I hear everything Sounds in the kitchen, my heart beating I don't have to rush, I'm just here listening I can breathe again I'm gonna stick my head under That was Tom Mustel. You can find information about Tom on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. I'll put links to his work and also to his book on the website. Again, the book is called How to Speak Whale, and it is stunning. The song you're hearing is Under the Water by Hand Habits and Amelia Meath, and Amelia is singing. The whale songs you heard in the show were recorded by Frank Watlington and Roger Payne. I also want to thank my friend, my oldest friend, Colin Dickerman, who introduced me to Tom. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. Above the water.
Could wounded, could come.